Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina wa Habibina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa salam tasliman kathira Alhamdulillah Ahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'gfiruhu wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina min sayyati a'amalina man yahdihillah falamudilla lah wa man yudlil falahadiya lah wa salatuhu wa salamuhu ala Sayyidina wa Habibina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa man wa'alah ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم الحمد لله بسم الله before we get into ميزان العمل the the one of the major ميزان العمل really is the standard of action it's it's إمام الغزالي wrote two books one of them was called ميزان العلم and it's a book on logic. Logic traditionally was considered the grammar of thinking. You need grammar, for instance, to speak properly because language is communication. If you learn how to communicate properly, then it facilitates human understanding. And one of the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the human being is the ability to speak. And that's from the Rahman, the merciful, taught us how to speak because speaking is, is one of the great mercies of Allah to humans because we're able to communicate unlike animals that have obviously some level of communication but they cannot, for instance, you know, the bird can't go to a bird doctor to find out what's ailing it and, and have a CAT scan and determine that the bird brain is suffering or something from a tumor um, from putting his nest on a chimney and inhaling too much smoke. Um, that's not going to happen. So humans were given language, and language is extremely important to, to know and learn language. Now, in Aboriginal cultures, one of the interesting things about Aboriginal, Aboriginal cultures, and these are the earliest cultures that we have, uh, Bedouin comes from Beda to appear. They're the first human beings, the Bedou. And the Bedou are not simply the Arab Bedou. They're, they're aboriginal from the original people. So sometimes they're called first peoples. Wherever these people are, one of the things that's significant about them is that their language is highly specific. And they, they often, uh, anthropologists are amazed at how sophisticated their languages are. They, they often have names for all of the relatives, so each one has a specific name. They have names for all of the things in their environment, so, so they don't use something like thingamajig. You know, where's the thingamajig? Which is for people that don't know the names of everything. Um, now, obviously, as culture gets more sophisticated, there are more names, and this is why the English language has literally hundreds of thousands of words. The Arabic language is probably the richest in terms of the actual number of possible words because it has a, a method of bringing new words. For instance, a word that appeared in the 1940s in the Arab world was uh, and it's in dictionaries, which means to behave like Hitler. So that, that's an Arabic word that can be used or to Amraka, he became an American. Or to Maghraba, he became a Westerner. Uh, so this is something that Arabic has this ability to generate uh, words, which is one of the unique aspects 
other languages tend to borrow from uh, languages, which was why the uh, the majami' al-lughawiyya were so important in the Muslim world. Fuad al-awwal, the king of Egypt who was unjustly overthrown uh, in that coup, um, he actually was a, a great patron of the Arabic language and started these these first uh, centers for the preservation of the Arabic language and for the advancement of the Arabic language as new words came in. So for instance, the word tirifon is used commonly, but the Arabs have a term in classical Arabic called hatif, which is a voice that you can hear, but you can't see the source of it. And, and so this word was used, it's actually used in Sufi terminology. The hatif is, is sometimes people like Omar heard uh, Sadia, his general in, uh, in, in, in uh, you know, he called out to him from, this was before AT&T, this is, this is uh, Muslim traditional uh, telecommunications, right? Sayyidina Omar was on the minbar in Medina and he said, Ya Sariyat al-Jabal, Sariya, look to the mountain. And nobody in Medina knew what he was talking about. This is one of his confirmed miracles. But Sariya heard his voice in Persia uh, and he was warning him about uh, a, a, an army that was going to attack them. So he was saying, look to the mountain. Um, so that, so Hatif is an example of bringing that. So when, when societies get complicated and sophisticated, you need language. Language is absolutely essential. Now the problem with language is that it, it becomes corrupted. Now modern linguists, and this is a whole medheb or school in the West, will argue there's no such thing as language being corrupted. It's just what people speak. And this is a, this is a view of language. And so they don't like grammarians. They don't like these pedants that tell them that you don't say, if somebody says, how are you? You don't say, I'm good. You say, I'm well. Uh, they don't like that. And, and they rebel against it. And they think that these grammarians, they call them grammar Nazis, are, are really, um, they don't understand that the nature of language is fluid and that it changes. But part of the problem with that approach is, is that language is for communication. And if you allow it to constantly change, then you lose the ability to communicate. One of the things that the early ulama debated was whether it was permitted for people to have private languages. Think about that. In other words, in a lot of cultures, you have subcultures that speak in their own lingo. And their fear was that if you allowed private languages to emerge, it would create dissension in a society because people could not communicate together. And this is why Omar actually beat people for speaking grammatically incorrect language. And Abu Bakr was very concerned about it also. Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya in his book on Usul al-Fiqh said that it makes perfect sense that the Khalifa would be concerned about the preservation of language in his society because he knew that that is how communication is preserved. So if language breaks down, communication breaks down. And this is why young people and old people can't speak anymore because they speak a different language. They don't know their communication. 
And, and when this breaks down, society breaks down. And you no longer have uh, the purpose of language being fulfilled, which is to unify people. And so grammar is actually very important because syntax, which is the proper word order, and although languages have flexible word orders, they have nonetheless rules of word ordering. Because if I begin to change an English word order, now obviously when you hear a foreign person speak uh, English who's not native to English, they will often use the syntax of their language and put it into English because they're used to thinking in the syntax of their language. We can get used to that and there's certain expectations from certain peoples about that. And, but, but a lot of people can't understand them. One out of four people in America cannot understand somebody if they're speaking in, in just a foreign accent. So you lose 25% of your population just in not pronouncing the English correctly. Um, but most of us can work it out, what they're trying to say generally. But there's cause for uh, concern because it, people can miscommunicate. So grammar was a very important science in Islamic tradition because and it comes according to the, our tradition, Abu Aswad al-Du'ali. I mean, modern uh, redactors reject these and say they're apocryphal. And, but this is all of our books convey these stories, and I don't see any reason to doubt them. But Abu Aswad al-Du'ali, he was with his daughter, and they were looking at the sky, and she said, Ma ajmar as-sama'i ya baba. And he said, Al-Nujum. You know, what, she, she put... The, the sama, she made it majurur. And she, and she said, I didn't mean that. I, I meant how beautiful it is. So she wanted to use ta'ajub, like she, ma'ajmara sama'a ya abati. It should have been mansub, but she made it majurur. He was very concerned about this, so he went to Imam Ali and he told him, he was a student of Imam Ali, and he said, You should put down some rules to protect the language. And then he told them, the language is divided into three uh, nouns, uh, uh, verbs, and, and particles, and uh, prepositions, all those other, what they call glue words in linguistics. And, and then he said, so go this path, which is where we get the word nahu, which means grammar, from Sayyidina Ali saying, go this way. So nahu is what grammar is called in the Arabic language. So, one of the big problems in our culture now is communication. We have a very hard time communicating. Now, another problem that's added to that is when you have a religious tradition that's, that obviously, as all religious traditions are, is rooted in a revelation. The revelation is delivered in language. So, because language has ambiguity, in other words, it has more than one way of under, being understood, you get problems arise, problems of communication. Because I can say something and you can understand, you know, I can say, let's eat, Grandma. <laughs> and if you're there with me and I'm talking to my grandmother, but you think I'm saying, let's eat, Grandma, <laughs> right? Because there should be a little comma there. Um, then... This is the nature of language. It can be misunderstood. And, and people have been, um, according to our tradition, people have died because of grammar mistakes. And people have also been saved because of grammar mistakes. There's a famous 
Kharigi, who, who wrote a, a line of poetry, and he said, وَمِنَّ أَمِيرَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Shabibu, you know, and وَمِنَّ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ And he put a bamma, and famas is the caliph, uh, and then he, he gave his name. So he was arrested, and then the real caliph said to him, you know, so you're claiming that he's the caliph and I'm not? He said, no, 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 I didn't say that. I said, وَمِنَّ أَمِيرَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ And then he made it mansoor, which is speaking to the Amir al-Mu'minin, not claiming he was the Amir al-Mu'minin. So they say that his knowledge of grammar got him, got his head preserved, right? So um, anyway, there's a lot of stories like that in our tradition. But one of the things that prevented people from speaking about knowledge was a lack of, of uh, knowledge of Arabic and and that included rhetoric because rhetoric is one of the fundamental and most important um, sciences in our tradition because rhetoric deals with um, deals with things like kinaya uh, isti'ara and then there's different types of isti'ara which are metaphors analogies metonymies these are very sophisticated tropes and figures in language that can, can mean different things, even contextually. They can have different meanings. So these are all uh, sources of confusion for people that don't know, but they're also sources of difference of opinion for people that know. And this is why our tradition has such... The, Islam is the only religious tradition that I can see outside of the Jewish tradition. It's the only religious tradition that really understood that human beings truly, legitimately differ in their understandings. And so it codified a type of difference of opinion that enabled Muslims to live together and practice different things and do different things in different ways and yet live in solidarity. One of the proofs of this, that that's, it is an intention of our creator, because Allah did not make all the flowers one color. He diversified them. So you have red roses and white roses. You have azaleas. You have daisies. They're all flowers. They have an essential nature of a flower, but they differ because Allah loves uh, differences. And, and it's a reason why when bouquets are often made, they're made with a lot of different flowers. People prefer a diverse bouquet than a bouquet of all the same flowers, unless they're roses, because roses have a special maqam amongst flowers. But the, um, <clears throat> these, these, uh, these differences were codified in, in a tradition called usul al-fiqh. Our religion has two usul, usul al-deen and usul al-fiqh. Usul al-deen is what you believe, it's the foundations of our belief, and usul al-fiqh is the foundations of our practice. And this is, all of Islam is divided into ilm and amal. And so, the foundation of ilm is usul al-deen, which has become to, come to be known as aqidah, uh, it, it came to be known early on as kalam, which was initially a very negative term, and there are a lot of negative statements about it by the early imams. Later on, it was incorporated uh, into uh, the Sunni tradition as, as, a, as a positive term, meaning dialectical theology, a theology of question and answer. And then 
usul al-fiqh, which is the, the foundation of how we derive rulings, legal rulings about things. Because everything in Islam is categorized under one of uh, seven categories, five primary ones and two secondary ones. The five primary ones, I think all of you know, are wajib or fard. And then there's nuances in the Hanafis, and you know they differ about um, wajib and fard, but generally they're considered syn- synonyms. And then you have mandub, which is encouraged. That's also called uh, nafila and, and sunnah. And then it goes into sunnah mu'akkada, uh, sunnah manduba, raghiba. They're different. These are all technical terminology of usuli scholars to determine a category. But the, the first category, you have to do it. If you don't do it, you're punished. Second category, it's, it's, you're encouraged to do it, but if you don't do it, you're not punished. Third category, mubah, which is also called ja'iz. Uh, but ja'iz can also mean makru. So something's permitted, but it could be makru. And then the third, so that's neutral. The third one is makru, which is that you, if you do it, uh, you're not punished for doing it. If you don't do it uh, out of a belief that it's makru, then you're given a reward for not doing it. And then the final one is haram, uh, which is also called mamnu' and muharram and Haram, if you do it, you're punished. And if, if, if you leave it, you're given a reward. So if you look, the, the rewards are much more than the punishments in those five categories. And then you have what's called, uh, you know, uh, fasid or batal and sahih, you know, uh, contracts that are either valid or invalid. And then depending on situations, even an invalid contract could be considered valid if time has passed and, and there was khilaf. But anyway, these are all usuli so this is how the Usuli scholars determined uh, how we derive rules. Now what's important about this is one of the things that has been lost in our tradition is the, 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 the dynamic engagement of the Usuliun of, of Deen, in other words the theologians, with the world and the Usuliun of Fiqh with the world. And so what's happened is our theologians stopped addressing problematic issues confronting believers. And so we have very few books that deal with seriously with evolution. We have very few, and people are confused about this. We have almost no books that even mention quantum physics and the problems of cause and effect. We have uh, very few books that deal uh, with uh, nominalism and essentialism, which are problems, or critical theory, which involve problems that relate to aqidah as well as fiqh. So, because the tradition has ossified or petrified, when I was young, my grandmother used to take us to a place called the Petrified Forest. It's in, it's in uh, Sonoma, and it's trees that have been there so long they've become stone. So a living thing became a dead thing. In many ways, this is what's happened to our tradition. A living thing became a dead thing. It's still a marvel to look at, but it's dead. In other words, it's not actively react, because the definition of life biologically is that it, it responds to stimuli. If it doesn't respond to stimuli, it's dead. So, usul al-deen and usul al-fiqh are supposed to respond to the stimuli through ishtihad through either through legal reasoning to arrive at conclusions 
or through the, uh, the ability to refute obfuscation, shubuhat, things that create doubt in the minds of believers. New atheism, which is far less sophisticated than old atheism. And one of the proofs that people are really, really uneducated today is that the new atheists are read instead of the old atheists who were much more sophisticated. I mean, Nietzsche runs rings around Dawkins or or Christopher Hitchens or uh, Dennett, any of these people, runs rings around them in, in, in the sophistication. Even the ancient Greeks, in their level of sophistication. Materialism is not new. Materialism existed in the time of the Greeks. There were materialists that, that believed that this was all there was. They didn't believe in spirits. They just believed in matter. So materialism is not new. Humans have been confronting materialism for centuries. Karl Marx wrote his PhD thesis on the Greek materialists. And, and those were the ones that Plato and Socrates were going around and destroying their arguments. So nothing is new under the sun in that way. But one of the things today is that people, there's a level of education that has led to, there's a level of education that has led to a lot of people being exposed to ideas that they would not have been exposed to in the past. And because they, they're semi-educated, partially educated, most of us are half-wits because true education is on the quantitative and qualitative sciences. Most of us, um, you know, I, 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 my, my quantitative side is much weaker than my qualitative side. I, I studied a lot more the language arts than I did uh, the sciences. But I did have science education. Um, and and uh, I'm able to read science books if they're not extremely technical. Um, but a lot of people aren't educated anymore in one or the other, uh, and very few are educated in both. Very few people on this planet are really educated in both. Our traditional ulama were educated in both. So these all create problems and a lot of confusion. Now, the ulama dealt with these things different ways. One of the most important things that they felt to prove was the prophecy of, of, of the Prophet Muhammad They were not that interested in proofs for the existence of God, par partially because the Quran says, Afilahi shak, is there any doubt about God? That it's really not a, it's, it's a fitra thing to believe in God. It's very easy to convince children that, you know, God exists. I, I, I mean, you could say, well, it's easy to convince them that Santa Claus exists. But at a certain point, they actually can see the difference between the two. Because it's very difficult for people to believe that this popped into existence out of nothing. Or that this organization that we see, the opposable thumb, the eye, the, the ear. I, I was with an audiologist um, who was checking the ears of, uh, of, uh, of one of the Mauritanians that was with us in, in uh, America. And on her wall, she had, she had a PhD in just the ear. Isn't that amazing? Just the ear. That was her PhD. It was like five years of just studying the ear. And she had a, a picture, pictures on her wall with all of these ears, the eardrum, the, you know, the shell, all of these intricate, the eighth cranial nerve, its relation to the central nervous system. And, and, and I said to her, it's amazing, the ear, isn't it? 
that just this, the level of sophistication in its design. And she said, you know, it's funny you say that because when I, she said, I, I entered grad school and I didn't really believe in religion or I was trained in science and much more interested in science. But during my PhD program, just studying the ear, I became more and more convinced that this could not have just happened by chance. And um, now Dawkins would say that, well, she doesn't really understand evolution, right? But um, that's a fitra response. And, and that's, that's just the ear, let alone the eye. Darwin referred to it as that damned eye because it, 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 it was hard to explain how it evolved. But, um, you know, th this is the age that we're living in. We're living in, in an age where you've got all these people out there creating doubts and you don't have responders to the doubts. So this created a lot of problems. Now, to accentuate the problem even more, you have a new phenomenon in our community, which is all of these people who have never been trained in grammar, in rhetoric, in logic, in the traditional, traditional madrasa studies. But they've gone to schools. They, so they went to public schools in Egypt or in Iraq or in Syria. or in, They have a, a, a relatively uh, reasonable knowledge of Arabic. They can read it uh, fairly well. And, and, and then they begin to self-study. And, and they become autodidacts. And so they read the Quran and the Hadith. Now, one of the things about Hadith tradition, both Quran and Hadith, it was prohibited traditionally to take Quran and Hadith from books. Right? لا تأخذ القرآن من مصحفي ولا تأخذ الحديث من صحفي That was a, a qaida amongst the, the ulama. Don't take the Quran from the mushaf and don't take knowledge from Sahafi. Sahafi is the one who learned from books. The reason for that is because it's, they're too difficult. Uh, there's too many possibilities for error, even in the hadith. One, one example. In the hadith of the, the moon sighting, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, Fast inciting it, and and uh, and then he and then he said, in uh, that's one riwayah. In ghubiya alaykum, that's another riwayah. In ghumiya alaykum, that's another riwayah. In ughmiya alaykum, that's another riwayah. And in umiya alaykum, all those are riwayat, and they all have different meanings. And and so uh, and then faqduru lahu, it says faqduru lahu. With a dhamma, faqduru lahu. But there's another riwayah, faqdiru lahu, with a kasra. And they have different meanings. Faqduru lahu, qadara yaqduru, and qadira yaqdiru. Qadara yaqdiru. So these are, this is sarf. And by changing just the dhamma, you change the meaning uh, uh, from dhamma to kasra, you change the meaning of qadr. Now this takes a long time to learn. Just to learn the, the Arabic takes a long time. But then, to learn the hadith, to listen to the muhadith, and to learn... These take a long time. And this is why knowledge is difficult. It's not an easy thing. Knowledge is difficult. And, and so you have all of these people now uh, that are, are, are uh, out there and coming up with very different conclusions that the traditional people came up with. Let me give you one example. 
in the burning of the Jordanian. It was said that this was Kisos, right? Does, do people know that? Does anybody, did anybody follow that story? The burning of the, right? They said it was Kisos, right? Well, in Sharia, you don't apply Kisos in war. There's no Kisos in war. There's no Kisos in fitna. If a fitna happens and Muslims fight each other, there's no Kisos. Because if you have Kisos, it's just gonna continue. It will never end. So you just forgive. Once it's all over. So that's the first problem. Nobody in the history of Islam said there's Qisas in war. Second problem, the hudud aren't implemented during war. Qisas is part of hudud. Then, another problem, burning. The Prophet ordered in a hadith to, to burn some people if they found them. And then later he said, don't burn them. أَمَرْتُكُمْ أَنْ تُحْرِقُهُمْ فَلَا تُحْرِقُهُمْ فَلَا يُعَذِّبُ بِالنَّارِ إِلَّا رَبُّ النَّارِ I told you to burn these people, don't burn them, because nobody can punish with fire except the Lord of fire. So there's a, now that hadith, some of the ulama took that hadith, other ones didn't take it, because nasikh and masukh is a real problem in the hadith tradition. So some of them uh, did not take that, because what they took was عَاقِبُ بِمِثْلِ مَا عُقِبْتُمْ بِي Punish people according to way that they've punished. Like in the Maliki tradition, in the Mukhtasar, it says, مَنْ قَتَرَ قُتِرَ بِمَا قَتَرَ وَلَوْ نَارَ Whoever kills somebody, he's killed with what he was killed, even if it was fire. There's a hadith that the Prophet ﷺ, a Jewish man, um, threw a woman off and her head was smashed on a rock. He stole from her her jewelry. And the Prophet ﷺ, according to the tradition, said his head was smashed with a rock. And this is what's called lex talionis. It's the Jewish tradition of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's right out of the Old Testament. But then the Prophet ﷺ, as his religion evolved, because it did evolve, the Prophet ﷺ was part of a process. He, he had legal rulings that later were changed. And this is to show that situations change rulings. This is human this is the human condition. You can't just fix rulings and with statute law and think that you can apply that until the day of judgment. There are certain things that are thawabit in Islam, fixed, and there are other things that are mutaghayyarat. This is the usuli prerogative to work out what's fixed and what changes. It's a very sophisticated tradition, which is why we need usuli scholars, and they're actually considered the generals. According to Imam Qushayri, they're the generals of this ummah. Because they're the ones that, that are able to command the troops. Not the fuqaha. The fuqaha can give you an opinion, but the usuli is the one that deals with new issues. And, and this is very important. Fatwa comes from fatia, yafta, to be young. It's new, fresh. Right? So the root of fatwa is freshness. Also from it comes futuwa. What is futuwa? Chivalry. It defends the community. So the fatwa is a defense mechanism of the community to protect it from harm. So this, this was very, very important. And, and this is one of the crises that we find ourselves in. Now the Prophet said, iman." The people that are most merciful, this is what Imam al-Munawi says it means. The people that are most merciful in their killing are the people of Iman. Because the Prophet said, إِذَا قَتَلْتُمْ فَأَحْسِنُوا الْقِتْرَةِ if you have to kill, do it well. Either the bahtum, 
If you're going to sacrifice an animal, do it well. In other words, don't cause the animal pain. Sharpen the knife. In the sunnah, it's, you give the animal water. You don't kill it in front of other animals. The Prophet saw a man sacrificing an animal in front of another animal. He said, are you going to kill it twice? Because the other one's seeing it and, and you know, it's his friend. <laughs> you know, this is rahmah. And, but what does Imam al-Munawi say? He says, look at the way the kuffar kill. Right? He said they kill, with tor- they torture, they do all this. This wasn't from Islam. The Prophet was a mercy, and he came as a mercy. And this is why the ulama, the majority of the ulama said, in qisas and in these things, you just kill them. Even in the riwayah of Bukhari of Imam Ali, it's, there's another riwayah that says he killed them first and then burnt them. So this idea of burning people, despite the fact that there are riwayat, this is the position, and this is why the Ottomans never burnt people as a, as a punishment. You know, the Muslims didn't do this. And even in the Quran, when it says, when you meet the enemies, strike the necks, فَضَرْبُ riqab, right? Look at the tafsirs. They say this is the most merciful way to kill a person. If you have to kill them, be merciful. Don't, don't cut their arm off first. Go right for the, the, the death blow. Because it's the most merciful way to kill. That's what they say in the books. That even in jihad, you're supposed to be merciful to people. So this whole idea of cruelty, it has nothing to do with Islam. And even Qayyim al-Jawziyah said, if, if you see cruelty, know that it's not from this religion. Because the religion is rahmah. Even in killing, there's rahmah. And so Abdurrahman, uh, uh, Imam al-Munawi says about that hadith, أَعَفُّ أَعَفُّ النَّاسِ قِتْرَةً أَهْلُ الْإِيمَانِ The people that are most... You know, iffa is like chastity, it's like uh, aversion to something, you know, being, you know, أَعَفَّهُ Like if you don't like something, you know, the, the people that are most averse to killing are the people of faith. Because they see the, 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 they see the creator in the creature. They see that you are a sign of God. Whether you're Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu, you're a creature, you are made by God, and therefore the sign of God is in you. And so, and so they're, they're, they're loath to do anything. And that's why the Prophet said, Don't desire to meet an enemy. Don't desire it. There's a sickness in this desire to kill people. So, what I wanted to do was just look at some principles that were established. Uh, this is a book that was written. And, you know, these problems have been around for a long time. It's not, it's not like they haven't been around. But the, the difference between the past and the present is that in the past you had hisba, you had regulators. You know, with, with, if you have, there, there are several doctors here. How many doctors here? Yeah. So are you licensed? Yeah. So what do you do to get licensed? Yeah, you have to pass an exam. What else? But before you get licensed, what do you have to do? Yeah, t- how many years? Yeah, okay. So that's that's 11 years, right, of training. Why? 
I, so, but why would they put all that effort into training you? Because, I mean, you could get, like, you could train a taxi driver. How long do they train for? I know it's more complex, but not driving in London. Because yeah. they, they take years to memorize all the streets. And, yeah. Yeah. So the, the taxi driver has to know how to drive. Because if you, if you let him drive taxis without a license, he's going to kill somebody. He might still kill somebody if he's, if he's uh, reckless, because you can have a license and be reckless. Like doctors can kill people with a license. But we know that you cannot, even surgery, you have to do extra training. So you can be an MD, but you don't perform surgeries unless they're minor. But if you're going to do brain surgery, neurology is a very difficult. They, even getting into a neurology residency is not that easy. Because it's very difficult, because you can really make a mistake. One slip of the scalpel, and you've got uh, you know, a lobotomized patient. This is for the protection of the body. Now, the soul is, is where religion is concerned. It has a concern with the body, and that's why thub is a far kifaya. It's, it's considered a collective obligation to preserve the body as part of our tradition. You're not allowed to harm the body. La darara wa darar. Don't harm the body. The Prophet ﷺ said, "Inna li haqqa." Your body has rights over you. Um, and the Prophet warned about overeating. The Quran warns about overeating. Kulu wa sharabu wa Eat and drink, and don't drink to excess, because Allah loves not the excessive. One of the Christians, when they heard that ayat, he said, "Ma taraka kitabuka shay'an li jalinus." You know, your book didn't leave anything for Galen, because the you know, traditional medicine believed that al-ma'idatu baytu da, the stomach is the seat of all disease. The National uh, uh, Center for Health in the United States, NEH, says that the uh, 80% of illnesses uh, in, in, uh, are caused by diet, bad eating. So, uh, fatwa is even more dangerous, right? The, in Urdu, they say, "Nim Hakim Khatri Jan, Nim Mulla Khatri Iman." You know, like to to have a half-baked doctor is dangerous for the body, but to have a half-baked scholar is dangerous for the soul. Right now, the body is finite; the soul is is infinite. The body will have eighty, maybe hundred, maybe hundred twenty. It's pretty unlikely you're going to go past 120. There have been people that have done that, but it's pretty unlikely. But the soul is eternal. So the danger involved in the soul is much worse. And, and this is why our scholars developed ways of ensuring that people... There was a licensing tradition. You had to get licensed, which was called ijazah. And that license was much more rigorous than it is today. And this is why even having a license today is not necessarily foolproof that the person isn't going to uh, go astray. But generally, uh, the ijazah tradition, and this is a proof of our religion, because uh, the isnad is from our religion by consensus of the ulama. Al-isnadu min al-deen. Isnad is from religion. Uh, and and isnad If it wasn't for the isnad, people would say whatever they wanted to say. So traditionally, you you had to work before you got ijazah. You read with teachers. They could see the level of your reading. 
they would know the level of your understanding very quickly. I mean, if you study with any real sheikh, um, they'll quickly discern whether you're getting it or not. They can see it just on your face. And, and often they would ask you questions when, when they saw something was difficult, they would say. Um, and, and the great teachers like Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, somebody who's at that level, um, Sheikh Abdullah wal Dahmedna is uh, another one, really stunning understanding. Sheikh Muhammad Yaqubi uh, has brilliant mind. I mean, really brilliant mind. And, and uh, I haven't met anybody at the level of Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayyan. I've had the good fortune of reading with several really great scholars, but I've never met anybody at the level of Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayyan in his, in his understanding, in his, the vastness of his knowledge of Arabic, the vastness of his knowledge of the Book of Allah, of Usul. And this is why he makes statements that the ulama haven't caught up with yet, because he's on another level. And Imam al-Ghazali was fought in his lifetime. Abu Bakr al-Tartushi, one of the greatest scholars of Imam al-Ghazali's period, wrote a book against him. Imam al-Maziri, the great Maliki scholar, one of the greatest Maliki scholars in our history, wrote a book against Imam al-Ghazali. Imam al-Ghazali's books were burnt in Andalusia and in Morocco. But it was Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi who was a student of Abu Bakr al-Tartushi that recognized Ghazali. Because when he met him, he, he, I mean, if you read the description of his meeting of al-Ghazali, he said, I went in there, and he was already a well-seasoned scholar uh, at the highest level. He has a, over a 30-volume tafsir of the Qur'an that unfortunately got lost with the loss of Andalusia. Uh, but his four-volume, Ahkam al-Qur'an, is a umda. It's a, a foundational book in the Maliki tradition, and as well as the other. The other people read it, like the Malikis read Al-Jassas from the Hanafi tradition. The Hanafis read Qadi Abu Bakr from the Maliki tradition. So it's, it's a book that transcends Madhab. But Qadi Abu Bakr was a giant of his time. When he met Ghazali, he said, it was like I had been in darkness before that. And he said, I came into the room and it was as if the sun rose and eclipsed all the stars. And he said, I'd never seen anybody like him. And he sat with him, he read the Ihya with him, uh, he read books, he asked him, he said, I wanted to understand the subtleties of his language. And so I asked him, and he said he treated me like the most generous of guests uh, during the time that he stayed with him. He, he stayed with him in Jerusalem when he was in retreat, and he stayed with him in, um, in Baghdad. Uh, but he was the one that took his teachings back to North Africa, and Imam al-Ghazali's teachings spread. And so those critics of Ghazali during their time, even though they're great scholars, they didn't recognize... and you know, with all respect to, because uh, they are truly great scholars, um, but, you know, uh, Shatabi mentioned that the, uh, the fuqaha were like tuyus ala zariba, you know, they're like goats fighting on the, the garbage heap, you know, like, you know, the ulama of one time, that's why you can't judge scholars in, in the time, a scholar can't really testify against another scholar in his time because of the hasad. Scholars are really understood after they're dead because during their time, they're always going to have people that envy them and attack them just because they're... And, and they won't... You know, Kierkegaard said people will admit a felonious crime before they'll admit envy. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to... You, you say, no, you just envy him. Astaghfirullah. Me, envy him. A'udhu billah. So, uh, anyway, 
So I just want to go over a few of these rules. How much time do we have left, Asma? Okay. So I want to go through a few of these rules. من شأن العلماء بالله وبأحكام الله أن يذهبوا مع الناس في الرخصة والسعة ما لم يخاف المأثم. This is Sidi al-Mawak was the last al-Abdari Muhammad al-Mawak al-Abdari was the last great scholar of Andalusia. He literally was with with when when they surrendered Granada. He was he was the scholar that all of the other scholars recognized as the top scholar in, in Andalusia. So he is the last. He's Khatimat ulama al-Andalus. He studied with great scholars. Um, he he's in the line of Ibn Lubbin and Shatabi, these uh, great Usuli scholars. He was an Usuli scholar of the highest order, and he wrote this book. It's almost as if this book, which is called Sunan al-Muhtadin, it's as if he was saying, "Apply this book, or else you will have the fate that we had in Andalusia." Because what destroyed Andalusia was all of the fitan between the Muslims. So he said. It is of the nature of the ulama billah wa bi'ahkamila because he divides the, the Imam al-Ghazali said there were ulama billah and then there were ulama of ahkam Allah but not of Allah and then there were ulama of Allah but not the ahkam of Allah and then there were ulama of Allah and the ahkam of Allah. So you, the ulama of Allah are people that know Allah uh, profoundly, even if their knowledge of the Sharia is limited, they have to know at least the Farda'in. But they they could have limited knowledge. So you can have a great wali of God who has very little knowledge. And there, in the history, there. Are, uh, I mean, I'll give you a, a good example. Abu Abbas, Afwan, Abu Abbas al-Hadrami, who was the teacher of Sidi Ahmed Zarruq, was illiterate. And he was, Ahmed Zarruq was one of the greatest scholars of his time, but he sat with a man who was, who was not, uh, he spoke in Amiya. Uh, Sidi Ahmed Zarruq took permission from him to put his sayings into classical Arabic, because he didn't speak uh, proper Arabic. And there are many examples of that, of people that Allah gave great knowledge to. Um, Sidi Abdul Aziz al-Dabbaq, the great Moroccan, is an example of that. So, anyway, he said, it's from the, 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 the nature of the ulama billah and of the ahkam of Allah, the categories of legal rulings of Allah, that they treat, they treat people, they give license to people. And yadhabu ma'annas fi rukhsa wa sa'a. To make things easy for people and give them room. This is the nature of the real ulama. They don't constrict for people. They give people, uh, License within limits, and this is why he says, "Malam yakhaf al-ma'tham," as long as they're not worried about sinfulness. And maru la yakhudu ala ahlihi berwara. A man should never expect scrupulousness from his own family. So, if somebody has wara, and wara means that you avoid anything that even smacks of doubt, and people of great scrupulousness will even not take. Permitted things, mubahat. So the, it just depends. But those people are not, they should not expect that from their own family or force it upon their family. Bid'atu al-dalalati a'ni an tahkuma ala shay bi ghayri hukmihi. The bid'ah of going astray, 
what the Prophet said, right? Every bid'ah is a dalala. That's the bid'at of dalala. Every bid'ah is a dalala. Now, that is a bid'ah shar'iyah. So, and the hadith clarifies it on Aisha, which is in the Nawawi's, من أحدث في أمرنا هذا ما ليس منه He didn't say من أحدث في أمرنا فهو رد He said من أحدث في أمرنا هذا ما ليس منه فهو رد Because something can be from something For instance You have to know the times of prayer Now Sahaba didn't have watches they told times by shadows. But if you use a watch, it should be a good one, like a Swiss watch. If you use a watch to determine the prayer time, which many of us do, right? We look on our watch and we see, oh, it's time to pray. We go pray. We, don't, we didn't go check the shadows. The sunnah was to check shadows. So that is a ihdath. To, to use prayer schedules is a, is a hadath. It's a bid'ah. But it's a bid'ah that's from the religion. It's minhu, and that's why it's permitted. If it's not from it, it's a bid'at dalala. And, and that's an important distinction. So he said, It's to give a thing a ruling that is not its ruling. So, so to say something like the mawlid, to say that this is wajib, right? It's, it's, it's mandub to, to, uh, to learn the seerah of the Prophet. The mawlid was one of the techniques that people brought later to teach people sirah. If you look at mawalid, they're basically sirah. It's a, you could literally call a mawlid a sirah. But to say that this is from the religion and this is that if you don't do it, something... No, that now you've made it a bid'ah because you've given it a hukum that's not its hukum. Al-ahadith idha ta'aradat wa lam yu'lam al-nasikhu min al-mansukh تساقطت ويبقى شيء على إباحته إذ لا يثبت حكم على مسلم إلا بدليل لا معارض له. This is a really important one. When you have hadith that contradict each other, if you don't know the nasikh from the mansukh, in other words, the abrogating hadith from the abrogated hadith, then neither of them are taken. They lose their their uh, their authoritative power to determine a ruling. And the thing is considered mubah. And then he says, because you cannot determine a hukum against another Muslim except with a dalil that has no objection. It has no... Uh, and this is why when there's a khilaf, he'll get into that, but this is a really important point. أقوال العلماء إذا تعارضت في أمر فقيل هو مشروع وقيل غير مشروع ما يكون هذا قط أحط مرتبة من المباح If the ulama differ about an affair and they say one says it's permitted and the other says it's not permitted then ما يكون هذا قط it will never be less than the ruling of permitted right because it's not mujma' alayh. The, the ulama have to agree on tahreem to say that it's haram. 
you can take the position of the one that says not to do it, tawarru'an, out of scrupulousness, but you can't expect that of others, even your own family. مَا كَرِهَهُ بَعْضُ الْأَئِمَّةِ وَاسْتَحَبَّهُ آخَرُونَ فَفِعْلُهُ أَوْلَى كَرَفْعِ الْيَدَيْنِ لِأَنَّ الشَّرْعَةَ يَحْطَاتُ لِفِعْلَ الْمَنْدُبَاتِ كَمَا يَحْطَاتُ لِفِعْلَ الْوَاجِبَاتِ those things that some of the ulama detested and others consider, considered to be recommended, to do them is more appropriate. So if they differ about this is makru or this is mustahab, then it's preferred to take the mustahab position, like raising your hands in dua. Because some say the Malikis uh, traditionally did not raise their hands in the dua. Even though there's hadith and some hadith say hatta they could see the ibtay and Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi But, and some of my teachers don't raise their like Murat al-Hajah, I never saw him raise his hands for dua. So some take that position. But he's saying that in, in the hadith are there, there's a difference of opinion, it's about mustahab, it's better to raise your hands in the dua. أجمع العلماء على اتقاء مواضع الخلاف. The ulama have agreed to guard yourself against these places of difference of opinion. Be very careful about these places of difference of opinion. الرؤية من غير الأنبياء لا يحكم بها شرعا على حال. The Prophet said that a, a true dream that a believer sees is 146 of prophecy. In other words, a true dream is, is part of prophecy, but the one having it is not a prophet, and therefore no legal ruling can be taken from the dream. Even in the books of fiqh about the prayer time, it says, There's no consideration for the kashf of a wali. A wali could know right when the prayer time comes in and just say, Kashfan. But you can't use that <laughs> like a watch. Because you can have the jajila, you can have people that aren't really awliya uh, making these claims. So, but then he says, so if that ru'ya does not go against the ahkam al-shari'ya, then it's permissible to act according to it. So for instance, uh, 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 one of the great salihin or awliya might see in a dream where he's told to do a certain dhikr a certain number of times. He can do that. Because if it was a true dream, he could do it and it's part of the deen. But you can't make a legal ruling. <laughs> and say, oh, it's mandub to do this so many times. But if somebody understands that's a ru'ya, somebody like somebody saw uh, Imam al-Katani, and he mentions it in the book, saw that to do uh, the 40 times, Yahyu ya qiyum, uh, la ilaha illa anta, subhanaka. Yahyu ya qiyum, la ilaha illa anta, 40 times before Fajr. He says that the heart won't die when other hearts die. So you'll find that done in some places. Uh, from that, based on that vision of the salih. So that's what he says. But it's not a hukum shari. You don't take a hukum shari 
But you can do a mustahab, something, dhikr is mustahab, as long as it doesn't go against uh, any uh, amr or injunction from the Prophet. Al-bid'atu an tahkuma ala shaybi ghayri hukmihi, we already did that. حقيقه البدعه المذمومه هي التي تميت السنه او تكاد تفضي الى اماتتها the reality of a, a negative bid'ah is something that that causes the sunnah to, to die it puts to death the sunnah or it will lead to the death of the sunnah so one of the things that is from the sunnah is dhikr so as long as the dhikr is masnuna, it's permissible to do it according to, for instance, the way certain scholars have put together awrad. As long as those awrad are from the deen, you can do that from that because that's the sunnah. So if you read Imam al-Haddad's word, that's not the way the Prophet ﷺ did his word as far as we know because we don't have the, the details of how the order. We know some things, the order of some things, but not everything. But all those things that are put in there are from the sunnah. And and this is true of, of a lot of these awrad. And then there are some awrad that are not acceptable, that some people put together. Uh, it's not permissible to use languages that aren't known, or to write m magical formulas, like in talismans and things like that. Uh, stars and numbers and things like that, numerology, those things aren't permitted. النصوص الصريحة بالنهي في القرآن والسنة فيما هو وارد على ما في ملك الإنسان أنه نهي أدب أو إرشاد لا نهي تحريم. Many of the prohibitions in the Quran and the Sunnah that relate to the individual behavior are the nahi of adab and irshad. They're, they're prohibitions of guidance and, and comportment. They're not prohibitions of tahrim. So there are many things where the nahi is in the hadith, but it's actually not for prohibition. And this is again, the usuris look at the nahi and try to determine what type of nahi it is. And that's why there's some khilaf about what's prohibited and what's not. Because of the actual hadith that they differ on. Al-amru bin ma'roof yakunu bi ma'roof. To command good should only be done in a good way. So you shouldn't, you're supposed to have rifq, gentleness with people and not harshness. Amrul hispati laysa bil huwayna. The regulating the people through Amr bin Ma'ruf and Nahi an al-Munkar, regulating people, regulating the markets, this is not an easy affair. It's, it needs a lot of knowledge because there are a lot of differences of opinion and you're not supposed to condemn things that there's a legal difference of opinion and people have a right to do it. Al-makru min qabil al-ja'iz. The makru is still considered from the ja'izat. So even if you see somebody doing something that's makru, you could, you could tell them that that's makru, or you just leave them alone if you don't think there's any benefit in that, or it's actually better for them to be doing that because if you tell them, like even Tamiya passed by some, some of the Mongols that were doing, uh, playing chess and he didn't say anything and somebody said, why don't you condemn them because most of the ulama didn't like uh, games of lahu. I mean, imagine what they would say about these games everybody's playing now. But they didn't like games of lahu because it was a waste of time. That's, that's for people of maqam. You know, if they're, if they're utilizing their time. But for common people, he left them because he said, 
this is preoccupying them. If they weren't doing this, they'd be doing something worse. So just leave them alone. Like he understood, prioritize. حكم المكروه عدم نقضه بعد وقوعه. So the ruling of makruh is not to rescind it after it's already happened. So you can have a makruh contract, but once it's happened, you just leave it. Right? النهي عن الشيء أمر بضده أو بأحد أضداده إن كان ذا أضداد. To to prohibit something is to enjoin its opposite or one of its opposites if it has opposites. So this, this hukum uh, is nuanced because it's not always applicable. A little bit of evil as opposed to a lot of evil is a great good. It's a really important point. And the Arabs say, Fulan khayrun min fulan. So-and-so is better than so-and-so. And they mean, أَقَلُّ شَرًّا He has less evil. <laughs> so, less evil is a good. And this is why in Usul you have ارْتِكَابَ خَفَ الضَّرَرَيْنَ Taking the lesser of two evils. So sometimes the lesser of two evils is a great good. Again, this is understanding. الْقُرَبُ إِذَا شَهِدَ شَرْعُ بِاعْتِبَارِ جِنْسِهَا فَهِيَ مَنْدُوبَةٌ Drawing near to Allah, if the sharia recognizes the genus, it can become manduba. So something that the Prophet did not command to do, but it's from its jins, the genus of it, like for instance, learning the seerah is a sunnah, uh, and very important for Muslim. That's why traditionally most of the ulama permitted gathering to recite Stories about the Prophet's birth and his uh, period and what, how he was when he was a child and these things because they considered it from the genus of it. And other ones, a small group said that it wasn't. That's a khilaf. Really, technically, they should not condemn the ones that do it. And the ones that do it should also not condemn them for not doing it because they're not doing it, not because they don't love the Prophet's life. And they're actually doing it in their belief that the Prophet wouldn't want them to do it. So they're doing it out of love for the Prophet. They're not doing the mawlid out of love for the Prophet. And then other ones are doing it out of love for the Prophet. So both groups should be seen in the light of love of the Prophet It's not that they don't love him. They No, they want to follow his sunnah. Right? That if, 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 say, if you love Allah, follow me. So they believe that that is the ittiba'a, is not to do ihdath, not to in, do something the salaf didn't do. And so that's their position. Whereas other ulama said, no, it's from the genus, and therefore it, it can be considered manduba. This is their opinion. These are differences of opinion. This is how the ummah gets united, you see, by recognizing legitimacy of difference of opinion of the ulama. And not just to say my way or the highway, I'm the only one. They didn't differ until knowledge came to them, oppressing each other with the knowledge. So I, the guy, you're wrong, I'm right. Imam Shafi'i said, I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. I think my interlocutor is wrong, but he could be right. That's the position of the real ulama. 
they take their position, but they recognize he has a legitimate uh, opinion if it's done within the confines of usul. النوافل ما قدر شرعه أن في فعله ثوابا من غير أن أمر به أو رغب فيه أو فعله. The nawafil, extra acts, are what the sharia considers in that act is a reward, whether it tells you to do it or encourages it or did it itself. So for instance, there are a lot of things that Muslims have done. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, our sister in the United States uh, encouraged uh, people to help rebuild the churches. Now, there were all these Muslims saying, you know, haram, you can't rebuild churches. And there's a couple of things to say. First of all, the, the Muslims traditionally uh, protected churches. Right now, they're destroying churches in Muslim countries. People that claim they're following Islam are literally blowing up churches, tearing down their crosses, doing these things, right? This is, this is a great crime against uh, a, 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 another religion that has that has the validity of perpetuity. It has the right to, to perpetuate itself. Traditionally, the Muslims in the Ahkam al-Sharia, they did not permit, permit Christians to build new churches. But don't forget, populations were stable at that time. It's only very recently that populations have begun to grow. In Andalusia, because the Christians were always a majority, majority the ulama actually permitted them to, rebuild, to build new churches. You know, because the, the Muslims aren't there to oppress people. And the African-American community, the, the most beautiful people that I've met in the United States are devout Christian African-Americans. I mean, I, hands down, I would take them over any other people in my country. And I'm not, I'm not saying that gratuitously. My experience, beautiful communities. You know, and, and the black church preserved uh, the, the African-American community. It preserved their families. Um, most of the the, the churches, uh, most of the great black uh, institutions of learning in the United States, like Dunbar College, Dunbar High School, and and Howard University, and these things. If you study the history, th- these were often devout Christians that started these institutions, um, and 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 uh, in in that community, the black church has been really destroyed, and. So for Muslims to be in solidarity and help them rebuild a church that was already there, not building a new church or fundraising to build, no, but in solidarity that we're in the United States and, and we are also a community, our mosques are under threat. And just as we would want them to support us in our expression of freedom of religion, we want to support them in their expression. That's usul al-fiqh. And, and this, this just, this is understanding. And unfortunately, it's something our community lacks a great deal of. So that's another problem. If the ulama differ about the tahleel or the tahreem of something, you don't call it haram. لا تقولوا تصفوا ألسنتكم الكذبة هذا حلال وهذا حرام لتفتروا على الله الكذبة إن الذين يفترون على الله الكذبة لا يفلحون. Right? Don't 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 claim don't describe with your tongues halal and haram. In other words, don't make the haram halal 
and don't make the halal haram. Al-Nahyu an al-Munkar la yata'anqu illa bin mujma'i alay wa la yunkarun mukhtarifu fi to forbid a vice is only if that is an agreed upon vice. That in which people differ about, there should be no munkar. And this, if people would just apply this one usuli principle, so much of the dissension and problems in our community would be resolved. Wallahi, just this one principle. If they would just apply this one principle. If it's mukhtalafi, you know, the calculation and the moon sighting by naked eye, it's mukhtalafihi. If people follow that one, they have a valid ishtihad. If people follow the other one, my personal opinion, I think the calculation is extremely weak, but it's there. And to deny it is to deny the ikhtiraf of our ulama. And that's why I'm not going to say their fasting is invalid. I'm not going to say that. And, and amongst the naked eyesighters, again, some go by that, uh, just a omiya tradition of if they say they saw it and they're just, they saw it, even if science says they couldn't have seen it. I don't believe that opinion either because we develop these sciences. But again, it's a difference of opinion. You know, and, and this is, we don't have to hate each other or get angry. I mean, Imam Tahir in my community, he went with the sightings. You know, I wouldn't go with the sightings. He went with, I love Imam Tahir. He's a beautiful human being. Really, he's one of the best people I know. You know, so I'm, why should we hate each other over these differences? Just, this is human beings. We're going to differ. But as long as we differ within the, the confines of the mukhtalafihi with, with sound usuli principles, then we can get along and, and, and our Islam can flourish. But if it's my way or the highway, it's no way. We're, we're just, it's moon fighting instead of moon sighting. Right? It's lunacy instead of lunar sighting. Madhab al muhaqqiqeen anna kulla mujtahidin musib. The madhab of the masters, the muhaqqiqa are the people of tahqiq. They're the great ulama. The madhab of the masters is the madhab of musawiba, that every mujtahid is correct. Now, the hadith says, مَنْ اشْتَهَدَ وَأَصَابَ فَلَهُ أَجْرٌ وَمَنْ فَلَهُ أَجْرًا وَمَنْ اشْتَهَدَ وَأَخْطَأَ فَلَهُ أَجْرٌ That hadith which is sound, whoever makes an ishtihad and, and is correct, he gets two rewards. If he makes it validly with the tools of ishtihad and he, and he is mistaken, then he gets one reward. How does that square with the, that they're all correct? Because that you ta'awwal al hadith, that hadith is interpreted by the musawwibah to mean that the, the khata is with God, but not with us. We consider it to be sound if they did it correctly with the, with the proper ishtihad tools. But Allah knows. So as far as we're concerned, it's a sound ishtihad. I disagree with it, but it's sound. So every mujtahid is musib. And that's the muhaqiqin. Those are the masters that concluded that. The other madhab is the muhaqiqa, the ones that say no, they're wrong. 
But this is the true school that will unite our community. Ibn Hazm's opinion that those who follow licenses are fasiq is, is rejected. So the ijma' is that whoever becomes Muslim, he can follow anybody who's a, a scholar and take his opinion. So when I first became Muslim, I happened to become Muslim with Malikis. So they just told me, pray with your hands down, move your finger like that, do one taslima. That's what I learned. Then I saw other Muslims, what are they doing? Don't worry about that. They're, they're Hanafis or they're okay, you know. They're all correct. That's what they said. They're all correct. But uh, Sheikh Nuh, he met Shafi'i, so he became Shafi'i. Uh, Imam Zaid uh, went to Syria and studied with Shafi'i, so he's Shafi'i. كُلُّهُمْ مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ All of them uh, took from the Prophet So they're all correct, even though the ishtihadat are different. لَا تَسَعُ الْفُتْيَا وَالْحُكُمْ إِلَّا بِمَشْهُورَ الْمَذْهَبِ That you should really teach the mashhur of a madhab because madhabs have so many diverse opinions that again you will create disunity in the community. Now I would argue in our time, this is true for ibadat. For mu'amalats, uh, it's a little trickier and that's why uh, with the mu'amalat there needs to be a lot more leeway just to make things easier for people. Uh, but for the ibadat, it's, that's true that you unless it's a difficult situation you can get people out of um those who know allah are better than those who simply know the rulings of allah but those are things that allah knows it's part of scrupulousness to get out of khilaf difference of opinion so Wara is to get out of khilaf, but, but you cannot impose wara on other people. You can only impose it on yourself. So it's better to follow a more, it's better to follow a more, uh, conservative position. In, uh, Islam is actually quite a conservative religion, but if there's a liberal opinion and it's accepted by the scholars as valid, and though these are scholars that are in the Isnad tradition, if, if you can only get to an obligation through a means, then that means becomes an obligation. To go against the group in things that are permitted is not from the, the characteristic of true uh, leaders. So when you see people doing something in their urf, you don't go against the urf just to be different. Or you think it's, this is the sunnah. The sunnah is to be with the group. The Prophet ﷺ said, Al-jama'atu rahma wal-firqatu adab. Jama'ah is a mercy. Wal-jama'ah ta'ifatu min al-nas ala gharadan wahid. Jama'ah is a group of people with one uh, goal. So a, a jama'ah of musafirin are going to the same place. 
So they're called jama'ah. The Muslims are jama'ah because our goal is ridwan Allah and Jannah. To please God, to please His Messenger, and to get into paradise. So we all have the same goal. Everybody in this room has the same goal as a Muslim, is to please God and get into paradise, right? Hopefully, that's our goal. To protect your dignity, even if it means leaving a sunnah, is, uh, is, is from the deen. So, there are situations where if you're going to be humiliated for the sunnah, then you leave the sunnah. Um, if you're in an area where to dress in a certain way is going to cause people to attack you or something like that, you shouldn't do it, even if you believe it's the sunnah, to do it. Because you, you should never put yourself in a situation where you're going to be humiliated. And again, he'll talk about in the book, for instance, Isa ibn Abdul Salam was asked about standing because the sunnah is not to stand. He said, but the sunnah is also don't, don't uh, split up and don't be divisive. Right? Don't turn your backs on one another. So he said, if we don't stand in these days when the urf is to stand, we'll end up creating division. Because people will see the person and say, what's his problem? Why isn't he standing? He doesn't respect me. So he's saying that it's worse to create dissension. That's one of the greatest ulama in the history of Islam, Izz ibn Abdul Salam. That was his fatwa. And there are many examples like that amongst the a'imma. Uh, Qadi Ismail, one of the greatest malikis, was in a gathering in Baghdad. And the, the, the minister of the caliph, who was a Christian, came into the room and he stood up and greeted him. He saw the ulama that were in his gathering look at him, and he was the biggest Maliki scholar of that time. He was considered mujtahid for the madhab. They looked at him like, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? And, and, uh, and when the Christian left, he said, I saw you got upset about me standing. He said, this is a minister from the government. You know, that he, he has the affairs of Muslims, whether you like it or not, in his hands. And Allah did not prohibit us from showing birr to them if they don't oppose us in our religion. Right? Right? Allah didn't prohibit you from showing those they didn't fight you in your religion or, or, or chase you out of your homes. Right? To show them birr. So he used that verse over the other one, فَلْيَجِدُفِكُمْ غِلْوَى You know, like, let them find harshness. That's another time. That's when you're at war, you don't want to be soft and gentle. You know, let's all sing Kumbaya and they're shooting bullets at you. That's stupidity. But that's not normally how you should behave with people. If they're nice to you, be nice to you. Ibn Abbas, you know, uh, a Jewish man said, Salaamu Alaikum. And the other man greeted him back. And he got angry at him. They went to Ibn Abbas. He said, well, if Fir'aun said something nice to me, I'd say something nice back to him. You know, this is the way they were. This whole harshness and this, where did that come from? Right? Where did that come from? It's a very strange thing. 
حقيقة التقليد قبول قول الغير من غير حجة وأما ما سمعته عن رسول الله فليس بتقليد لأنه حجة في نفسه The reality of تقليد تقليد is to uh, conform to the opinion of another without knowing the proof It's to accept the, op- the opinion of another without knowing their proof for it That's تقليد which is a negative thing in our religion but it's the hukum of people that don't have knowledge It's it's to get out of taqlid is a good thing, but if that's where you are, that's where you are. وَأَمَّا مَا سَمِعْتُهُ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ But what you hear from the Prophet, فَلَيْسَ بِتَقْلِيدِ If you have understanding, yeah, it's important that, you, you know, this is like, if you can't follow the hadith without knowledge of Arabic and grammar and studying hadith with ulama. من حضرت له نية في مباح ولم تحضر له في فضيلة فالمباح أولى. If you have nia with a mubah to make it something good and 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 you don't have nia with a virtue, then the mubah is better than the than the virtue. المباح يصير مكرمة بالنية. The mubah can become a uh, a uh, a positive thing by intention. An honorable thing that you get a reward for. So to eat is permitted. Kulu washrabu is permitted. Ibaha. But if you eat with the intention of taqwiya for ibadah, then it becomes a makruma. And ma'asiyatu la tanqaribu abadan makrumatan bi sababin niya. No disobedience can ever become a makruma because of niya, because of your intention. Wastathna min hadha. But they excluded from this maslahatan shar'iyatan lam tanal, lam tunal, illa bi mafsadatan dunaha. But they, they took the lesser of two evils out of this. So, you know, if you have to do something that normally would be a ma'asiyah, but it's a way of preventing a greater ma'asiyah, then that, that's the exception. Al ma'asiyatu idha kanat tadra'u ma'asiyatan a'zam fa inha tufa'an. If doing something prohibited will prevent something greater that's prohibited, then it's, 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 it's done. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna finish this, but I'm gonna stop here. These are very important. But I'll end with one. Al-Ammi lawzana aw saraqa. A common person, if he fornicates or steals, kana khayra lahum min an yatakalamma fil ilm bila, bila, that a common person, if he fornicates and steals, it's better for him than he speaks about knowledge of this religion without any uh, training. And that's based on the ayah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala إِنَّمَا حَرَّمَ رَبِّيَ الْفَوَاحِشَ مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا وَمَا بَطَنَا وَالْإِثْمَ وَالْبَغْيَ بِغَيْرَ الْحَقِّ وأن تشركوا بالله ما لم ينزل به سلطانا وأن أن تقولوا على الله ما لا تعلمون uh, ابن قيم الجوزية إن إعلام الموقعين he says that this ayah is it's a tartib of the severity of, of prohibitions the first are the fawahish right and those are like any foul thing like fornication is a fahisha لا تقربوا زينا إنه كان فاحشة وساء السبيلة don't go near Fornication because it's a fahisha. So fawahish are less than antaqudu Allahi ma'ala ta'alamun. That you say about God what you don't know. So he's saying it's better for that person. Here, khayru means aqallu sharran, less evil. It's not a good thing, but it's less evil. 
And this is, if people understood that, really, we would, we would stop talking. I mean, the, you know, these are momentous things. The Imam Malik, when he was asked a question in, in fiqh, he would say, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. That's what you say when you, إِذَا أَصَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَرُوا إِنَّ لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّ إِلَّهِ رَاجِعُونَ He would actually see it as a calamity that he's being asked about the deen of Allah. Because he has to give an opinion that he thinks this is God's opinion. Who wants to take that responsibility? There have been incidents of people being murdered for committing blasphemy uh, towards the Prophet What would be the usuli approach to this. Well, first of all, you, nobody can, la darara wa la dirar. Nobody can take the law into their own hands. Blasphemy laws are judged by qadis. It's not the, nobody can kill another. I mean, look, think about this. If I wanted to murder somebody, all I would have to tell the judge, oh, I heard him say something bad about the prophet, so I killed him. Oh, okay, you can go. What kind of, think about that. It's crazy. You can't, nobody can take the law into your own. And then the laws of Islam do not apply in the lands of, of other people. They can do whatever they want. Allah, Allah, we will take care of the mockers. The Prophet was mocked in Mecca. His Sahaba didn't go and kill anybody. Even when, when they were making fun of him, and intending him, they wrote a poem and they used the name Mudhammam, which is the opposite of Muhammad. He said, look how Allah has removed their tongues from me. They're talking about some guy named Mudhammam and I'm Muhammad. You know, it's like he didn't give them any reality. It's like the, the, the have you ever seen that uh, surrealist painting that, that it's, it's a picture of a pipe and it says, this is not a pipe, right? To make you think, it's not a pipe. It's just an image of a pipe. It's not the pipe. So anybody who draws a caricature and says that that's the Prophet Muhammad, they're lying. And if you, if you bring me anybody from the ulama or the Muslims that have any two cents of brains to have them swear an oath that that's our Prophet them. they're kafir. If they say that's the Prophet, they're kafir. It's not the Prophet, it's some stupid thing from their own imagination. And unfortunately, some Muslims are painting those pictures for them. By their behavior. They contribute the, the pens and the paper. In the Islamic tradition, what are the most effective ways to learn and perfect a language, specifically Arabic and English language? Is there book recommendations to help doing so? I mean, the, first of all, language, speaking and writing, there's an element of it that's clearly a gift, but there's also a a large part of it that is acquisition. So you can learn and master. Uh, Sheikh Saeed Ramadan Abuti, Allah Yarhamahu, told me that he tried to write poetry, but he never could. I know people like Zain al Abidin, who's the son of uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bey, he's a brilliant poet. And in fact, I'm going to read one of his poems for you guys before I go, inshallah. But uh, a brilliant poet, he didn't study Arod. Sheikh Saeed studied Arod. He studied prosody and the rules of versification. Zain al-Abidin could just do it from hearing it. He just hears the meters. Those are, those are mawahib gifts. But to learn gra grammar in any language is difficult. 
English grammar is complicated. Uh, I've spent a lot of time studying English grammar. I still get confused on some rules, and it's Arabic is also difficult. The, the most difficult thing in Arabic is sarf. Um, sarf is it's just a it's a tough one. Sarf. But the the grammatical rules of Arabic are actually relatively easy. They, they don't take a long time to master. Um, I would suggest if you're an English speaker, first studying through the medium of English. I think it's preferred to an immersion method. Personally, I did the immersion method, and um, there were a lot of nuances that I did not really understand until I started teaching Arabic through the medium of English. And it really helped because when you when, when, there are certain idioms in Arabic that became much clearer to me when I saw translations for them uh, in, in, uh, in English. So I would recommend doing that first if you're Ajami. And that's traditionally how Ajam were taught. Uh, they were taught through the medium of their own language in a lot of Muslim countries. Like in Urdu-speaking countries, they use books that are written in Urdu to study Arabic grammar. It helps. But eventually you have to go into the Arabic grammatical texts, the Ajurumiya, the Qatr al-Nadam, al-Hatr al-Arab. I would recommend studying the traditional ones. Some people prefer Nahwad Wadih. Uh, and some of the modern ones. The modern ones are, it's Nahwad Wadah is good grammar. It's, it's a good book. Um, but the, the, the earlier ones are easier to memorize and a lot of the rules need simply to be memorized by rote. So, um, but there's good books. There's a very nice book called Gwyn's Grammar, which I'm using in my freshman seminar. It was written by an English grammarian. Uh, it's short. It gives you a very good overview of, and he makes a beautiful argument for why grammar is so important. He actually believes that grammar can save the planet. <laughs> like if we would just learn proper grammar, we could start communicating again. And he makes a very solid logical argument that the lack of grammar is threatening the well-being of the planet. So, with reference to quantitative and qualitative sciences, which are the most important amongst them to study in order to respond to the crises of the age? The, the qualitative sciences are more important in our tradition than the quantitative because the qualitative relate to revelation. You don't need to know mathematics other than very simple fractions to, to practice sharia. And Sahaba had very limited knowledge of mathematics, but they were masters of language and they were natural logicians and rhetoricians. So they did not, they did not know the formal sciences of rhetoric and logic, but they, they knew them intuitively. And like Socrates, Socrates is one of the most brilliant logicians in history, uh, but he did not study logic. It was Aristotle that looked at what Socrates was doing and, and developed the rules of logic from Socratic method. The same is true of Imam Shafi'i. Malik was practicing usul al-fiqh, but Shafi'i looked at what he was doing and what the other mujtahidun were doing, and he codified it. It's a type of genius that's able to derive rules from, from natural practice. And so, for instance, there's a reason why if I say to you, you know, ask not what Zaytuna can do for you, but ask what you can do for Zaytuna. That somehow sounds better than saying, you know, instead of thinking about 
what Zaytuna can do for you, you should really you know, think about helping Zaytuna. It just sounds better, and, and you'll remember it for some reason, right? So all rhetoric is is looking at, at great rhetoricians and noticing that they use certain tropes and figures, and, and then, like, for instance, alliteration, genus. For some reason... You know, a man should not, you know, be judged by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. Listen to all the cuz in there. We like alliteration just naturally. And that's why, you know, if you said, you know, don't judge people by the way they look, you know, judge by the way they act. It doesn't sound as good. And, and, and so rhetoric is partly a bag of tricks that, that, that you learn in studying rhetoric, but it's also um, a way of really understanding why the Quran was so powerful. Because Abu Bakr al-Baqalani, who was a great rhetorician, wrote a book proving that there is not one sentence in the Quran that could be rhetorically improved upon. And he, and he shows how the Jahli poets, all of them, the greatest of them, had bad lines. And he said that you cannot find any verse in the Quran that could be rhetorically improved upon based on these rules of rhetoric. In a time with much confusion and short enough usuri fuqaha, how can we reconcile difference of opinion or know what's right if we're not on the track of becoming full scholars? Well, part of it is to try to identify people that you trust, which is difficult in and of itself. Um, for me, I haven't met anybody that I trust more than Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya. But he's a human being, and he could he could be wrong on some things. So, uh, and there are scholars that I really like, but I don't agree with them on all the issues. So, um, in the end, you know, at one level, Islam is very simple, and you don't need to complicate it, really. The, the the simplest person can understand this religion, but but there's certain you know one of the things Sheikh Abdullah quotes a lot is the four criteria that you should always use to judge anything that Islam is is mercy, it's rahma, and it's not cruelty. It's always rahma, even when when it's a harsh thing like a surgeon's knife should be extremely sharp. It would be cruel to, for the surgeon to use a dull scalpel, right, or a saw. Like, what are you doing with that? Well, I need to, you know, open up your stomach. Why are you using a saw? I don't have a scalpel. <laughs> so you don't want a cruel surgeon. Uh, so it's all rahmah, and it's also all, uh, it's all maslaha. It's all benefit. It's not mafsada. So if it's, if it's harmful, it's not from Islam. And it's all, uh, hikmah. It's, it's wisdom. So if it's foolish or stupid, it's not from Islam. And it's all just. It's adala, it's justice. So if it's not just, if it's, if it's oppressive or wrong, it's not from Islam. A lot of that you can, just your common sense and what your mom and your dad taught you are good standards and criteria. So if it doesn't sound right, it probably isn't. Now, unfortunately, people can get brainwashed, and there's a lot of people doing that, you know. But the Prophet did not have anybody do any suicide missions in Mecca or Medina. And he, he didn't, 
he didn't permit it. I think that was one of the biggest mistakes because there are some ulama that justified it, but they always justified, oh, only in the context of Palestine. It doesn't work like that. You open a door, and then you open a door for depressed people. Like somebody just sees depressed. I mean, who's going to strap on bombs onto themselves and go kill themselves? You know, and think they're doing good. These guys have killed more Muslims than, than anybody uh, fighting the Muslims. Uh, I have read from Al-Ghazali some texts recording talismans uh, to depict the logically unexplainable. Is it condemned? You know, there's something called a ta'wida, which, uh, which there are hadith against it because the Jahli Arabs used to do them. But the ulama in Maliki fiqh, I don't know about the other methods, but in Maliki fiqh, it's permitted to write them. They're not encouraged. But some people have a lot of waswasa, and so uh, it's permitted to write something from the Quran that they can carry with them to give them some kind of... It, it's almost like a psychological um, treatment of just waswasa, just to calm them down or something like that. Um, but it could only be from the masnoon. And there is a hadith that the Prophet put them on uh, Hassan and Hussein, which is where they take that from. When speaking of khilaf or something being agreed upon, does he mean within one madhab across the four madhab or even the dead ones across? Yeah, khilaf, it means that if it was a rightly guided mushtahid who's recognized by the ummah as having achieved the level of ishtihad, and there are levels of ishtihad. So you have the, the mushtahid al-mutlaq is an absolute mushtahid. This is like Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi'i, uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Marik, Imam Marik ibn Anas, uh, Imam Layth, uh, Imam Abu Sufyan al-Thawri, um, Imam al-Awza'i. Uh, and, and some claim, Suyuti uh, initially claimed ishtihad al-mutlaq. Uh, some say Imam Kandahlawi from India uh, who wrote Hujjatullah al-Baligha, was a mushtahid mutlaq. There have been claims later, but in the early period, the agreed-upon ones, there were several people that reached, reached this level. Um, and, and those are people that actually have their own usul. So for instance, Abu Hanifa anhu, he has a position where he will not take hadith, even if they're sahih, if he thinks it goes against uh, something... Uh, in a Quranic uh, principle that he uh, makes from Qiyas. Or, for instance, he won't accept, there's certain hadiths like Abu Huraira, in, if it's in a fiqh issue. Abu Huraira was not known for his fiqh. He was known as a rawi of hadith, although he did do, uh, he did give fatwa, but rarely. He was not from the, the, the muftin of the sahaba, but he did give some fatwa. But for instance, Abu Huraira has a hadith about, you know, whoever uh, does wudu, you know, it, it'll give you nur, and the Prophet said, so let him increase in that. So he used to do the wudu beyond the elbow to, like, get more nur. The, you know, the, the ulama said that that was a misunderstanding of the hadith because it was actually meaning doing wudu on wudu. So even if you're in wudu, to do wudu again before the prayer, that's how you do it. 
So that's an example where, um, you know, he understood something, but it wasn't what the fuqaha understood from it. Um, and radiallahu uh, anhu. So there, there are many examples of that uh, in where he differs from Imam Malik. Imam Malik took the amal of Ahl al-Madinah over Ahad Hadith. So if, if the Hadith was a solitary, which means that, uh, you know, there's, there's two, ty- two basic types of Hadith. Ahad and then Mutawatir. Mutawatir means so many people related, it's factual. So it's, it's, it's a factual Hadith. It, it's impossible. Like the Quran is Mutawatir. And, and, and so this is called Qat'iyatul Wurud in Usul. It means that it's a decisive, uh, statement that cannot be denied. And there are hadiths like the Prophet Naha'an Qatar and Nisa wal Awlad. And then you have Tawatir Lavdi, you have Tawatir Ma'nawi, so you have hadiths that are Mutawatir in, in the actual level of it. That's Lavdi, like it was related so many times in the same way that it, it has factual. It's as good as an ayah of Quran in terms of its reliability. A hadith that is ma'nawi means even though it's related in different meanings, in different uh, phrases, the meaning is mutawatir. So for instance, the prohibition on killing women, children, and non-combatants is mutawatir. So, so you cannot kill women or children or non-combatants in, in war. It is haram as strong as anything in the Quran is haram. Uh, the mutawatir are... You know, there's a difference of opinion about how many there are, but they're not more than 500. It's a small amount of hadith. There are over 54,000 hadiths altogether. Only 500 of them, around 500, are considered mutawatir. And they've been collected in books. From the ahad hadith, you have variations. So you have sahih. Every mutawatir is sahih. I mean, it's higher than sahih. But... You have sahih, you have sahihun bi-ghayrihi, hasanun, hasanun bi-ghayrihi, and then you have da'if, and then you, you've got over, like, several categories of da'if. I mean, you're, you're getting into, uh, d- depending on the types of words they use, you'll get into dozens, but there's over 20 categories of da'if hadith. And so, the weak hadith, depending on how weak they are, depends on what you can use it for. So most of the ulama agree you can use them for fadail al-amal, which are virtuous acts, like reading Yasin uh, for over the dead people. Some people differ on that. It's a weak hadith. Iqra'u Yasin ala mawtakum. Yasin lima qurya But most of them say it's permitted. Ibn Rushd said this is a khilaf about Allah's rahmah. It's better to err on the side of rahmah. Don't make a big deal out of it. So these are fadail al-amal. A weak hadith is not fabricated. If it was fabricated, it would be called mawdu'ah. It means that the Prophet probably said it, but the probability is less than a sahih hadith. So it it gets a C grade as opposed to a B, like a hasan hadith, or an A, like a sahih hadith. And then you have A+, muttafaqun alayh. And then you have 100%, which, which is the mutawatir. So, uh, and then weak, that's very weak, it's a D. And then flunk is a mawdu'ah. 
So you don't throw out a D paper, but it's not the one you put up as the example, right? You don't use it for an example. But if that C paper has something that you didn't find in an A paper, then, then you know, you might point that out. So that's where fawail al-amal, if, if you find it in a weak hadith or in akhbar, like the ghaybiyat, the weak hadith about the end of time are used because if they come true, then even if they're weak in the senad, the fact that they've become true, that, that proves that the prophet probably said it. And that's why even if, and then munkar, you know, people say, oh, it's a munkar hadith. They don't even know what munkar means. You know, that, 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 the munkar hadith can be, have soundness in the transmission, but only one person. You know, or some, so, and then some it's not known. So if they say yarwi and manakir is different from huwa munkar al hadith in, in the techno, these are, these are, you know, very, very, uh, these are all technical terms. When you study mustarahat al hadith, you learn these distinctions. So, um, So, you know, the best thing is to, you know, find somebody that you trust, uh, that people have not, uh, you know, and hopefully that is not, if, if, if they have opinions that aren't common, if they're really out there, then you, you just have to, the Prophet said, the hadith, if, 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 if you differ, follow the, the, the the vast majority. It's better to be with the group. Subhanakallah, alhamdulillah, shadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfirullah.